Here in Act 7 we have Stephen's defence, and let's remember the context. I think that Stephen knew that he was going to die, and so this is his kind of his swan song. And what impresses me deeply is his desire in this speech to persuade the Jews. There's a subtext all the way through, there's a number of subtexts really, he's not just reeling off a history of Israel. He, for example, chooses to emphasize how Israel rejected their own saviors in the same way as Israel were now rejecting Jesus. And he also talks about how people could have a relationship with God outside the land of Israel and outside the temple system. And in fact, he's quite critical of the temple in how he talks about uh, how Solomon built the temple, but it was not ideally what God wanted. So then, I just uh, am amazed, really, at his hopefulness, at his earnest desire to save at least somebody. Even when, I, I think for me, I would have probably switched off. I would have thought, you evil men, you just want to kill me, and uh, okay, you know, you, you just get on with it. But he's so earnest to try to at least save them, to try to touch somebody's conscience. And, of course, it worked out in the sense that the man who was behind all this, who was smugly sitting there or standing there, Saul, eventually became converted. And you can look at a lot of uh, Paul's writings and see allusions back to Stephen, particularly to Act 7, to this speech. So it really did work out in the very end. And there should therefore in us also be a hopefulness for people, an earnest desire by all means to try to persuade others to, to come to, to the Lord. Now, let's start off in Acts 7 verse 4. He's talking about Abraham. And don't forget that from Stephen's point of view, these men who were trying to kill him and who were there ranged against him, he believed or he hoped that there was somewhere within them a conscience and that they really just had to come out for the Lord. And he talks about Abraham, I think, because Abraham also, the great father of the faithful and of the Jewish race, was in fact also in his own way weak and needed God's confirmation to, as it were, come out. Now, God had told him when he was in Ur of the Chaldees, leave your family and leave your uh, people and leave all that you know and go to a land that I will show you. And that was to Abraham. And he doesn't quite do that. He does not quite respond because he leaves with his father, Terah, who was an idolater, Joshua uh, 24 makes clear. And they, they don't actually just uh, leave and obediently troop off to the land of, uh, land of Canaan. Abraham goes, first of all, to Haran. And he stays in Haran until his father dies, and then he moves onwards from Haran to the land of Canaan. So his obedience, his response to the call, was not really as it might have been. He didn't separate from his family, and in fact, you could argue that he, he should have separated from Lot, and it was only providential circumstance which led to God working through the whole uh, situation of, of his own wealth and Lot's wealth that led Lot to separate from him. But anyway, in the RV there is 
a different uh, version here of verse 4, and I don't like to uh, really base an expositional point too much on, on, a, on a finer point of uh, textual analysis, but it fits in with the thesis that I've just outlined. And it is that in verse 4 in the RV, it says, From thence, that is from Haran, God removed him into this land where you now dwell, that is into Canaan, into Israel. So God removed him from Haran. Well, it could have been that God removed him in the sense that his father died and that freed him up to be his own man and do his own thing and uh, it made these, the commanded separation from his family somewhat easier. The point is that God is waiting there to confirm us <clears throat> in the decisions that we that we make in the response to the gospel that we make God is waiting there to confirm us you can see the relevance to Stephen's situation surrounded by his Jewish enemies whom he believed had a conscience and if only they would move forward God would confirm them in that and what a, an amazing victory it's going to be for Stephen when he wakes up in the kingdom and there is Paul Saul, the young man who was standing there smirking uh, as he saw Stephen done to his death. And he's going to see Paul there as sort of parade example of, of great, one of the greatest Christian believers there's ever been. Talking about God working with people, you see it again in verse 13. That at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren. Now that could be implying at the... Uh, uh, a second coming of Messiah at, with, at which he will be accepted by his brethren. But my point is that Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Again the RV, Joseph's race became manifest unto Pharaoh. So Joseph had somewhat hidden, I think, the fact that he was a Hebrew. As he went on in, uh, in power, uh, or he allowed it, willfully allowed the fact he was a Hebrew to be forgotten. Because the little detail added there that Joseph's race the fact he was a Hebrew only became manifest unto Pharaoh at that time when his brothers came down to him now that idea of having to uh, come out in the open about being Jewish about being one of God's people that is of course uh, what happened with Esther that she didn't tell people she was a Jewess but then, in the time of crisis, to save her people, she came out publicly and said, Yes, I am. And again, you've got another example of this in verse 23, talking about Moses. Although it's not specifically stated by Stephen, it's obviously that case. Uh, when he was full 40 years old, and that seems to imply on his 40th birthday he decided to uh, deliver his, his people. But it could be, and there's a lot of Jewish tradition on this, and you can't prove this, but it could be that the uh, historical evidence that at age 40 you became Pharaoh, it could imply that on the very day of his sort of birthday party, when he was going to become the next Pharaoh, because he was, after all, the adopted son of Pharaoh, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, he came out in the open. Now, in Hebrews 11.24, you have this fleshed out a bit. 
By faith Moses, when he was come to years, and again this could imply his birthday at age forty, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. Now, I think those tenses there in Hebrews 11.24 imply a one-off choice. He refused and he chose. My reconstruction of the situation is that at age 40 there was this birthday party when he was to be really made the next pharaoh when he could have been the most powerful man in the world and he refused and chose God's people and so he refused you can imagine him then at this great uh, ceremony standing there and saying I whom you know in Egypt as Mises I'm Moshi yes Moshi the Hebrew and I decline to be Pharaoh and then you know you can imagine his voice sort of cracking with shame and stress and yet some sort of proud relief that he was doing the right thing and then he sort of runs off exits through the uh, through the backstage kind of thing and it's the same idea of coming out in the open so then those three examples that he quotes there um, uh, of coming out in the open I think that he really has in mind the fact that he knew that in their conscience so many of these Jews uh, who were trying him had a conscience and we know that Paul did because Jesus says it's so hard for you to kick against the pricks in your own, in your own conscience and of course we mustn't fail to see the, the lesson for ourselves that we also need to come out there are times almost every day when we have the choice to be a secret believer to just think that I am a Christian deep deep in my heart behind my computer screen operating on certain uh, websites that's me I'm a Christian but in daily life it's a question of coming out far more openly for for the Lord and God will work through providential situation to make you like that like he did with Abraham as he did with with, with Esther uh, and as he did with Joseph and you could say with Moses see another example of that really with the family at Bethany at the end of John 11 we read that the priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if anyone knew where Jesus was he should show it that they might take him it's John 11:57, and then straight on John 12 verse 1 so Jesus therefore therefore came to Bethany and he stays with them for the week before he's going to die and it's uh, recorded in John 12 um, verse 12 sorry verse 9 that many people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there and they came to him so it's as if he was sort of making public the family at Bethany that he was staying with them knowing that the Jews had said if anyone knows where he's staying please show it he publicly stays with them and people come to him there so God is actually working in your life to help you to do just that to come out openly and, and publicly and it's uh, over to us really if we respond now as I've said back in Acts 7 there was Saul sitting there or standing there listening to this speech now putting together 
uh, Acts 7 35 and Hebrews 11:24, talking about Moses being refused I think you see a connection of thought between the two records uh, there in verse 35 of Acts 7 this Moses whom they refused that Israel uh, refused and yet the same word as in Hebrews 11:24, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter putting the two things together Moses refused Egypt and Egypt refused him and yet Israel refused him so he was left alone with God now it seems to me that the writer to the Hebrews was fully aware of Act 7 and is playing on that idea of refused and although it sounds a bit old hat uh, it, it seems to me that Paul was the author of Hebrews and uh, we can talk about that later but uh, I, I think there's some very strong evidence that, that he was so then my point is that the witness of Stephen was not in vain and here in Acts 7 we read verse uh, 27 uh, and verse 39 that they thrust Moses away from them verse 39 they thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt same word in Romans 11 verse 2 which is definitely Paul writing God has not cast away or thrust away Israel same word now surely the connection is meant to be made that this is God's grace that's the whole theme of Romans and Romans 11 that Israel and God's relationship to Israel are the parade example to us of God's grace and so Paul says that God did not thrust away Israel didn't cast away Israel although he should have done although they deserved it he did not thrust them away and yet they Israel according to Acts 7 two places 27 39 they thrust away or cast away Moses so don't give up by trying to get a word in for the Lord you know everyone has got a conscience people are wired with a, a conscience toward God they may not have a, a desire to get involved in a religion but they have a conscience toward God and there is a, a hole in the human psyche which I really believe can only be filled by belief in God and in Jesus so that's why whenever you raise the, the matter of Jesus of Christianity uh, people respond quite differently than if you for example were trying to sell them something <laughs> or get them involved in some sort of double glazing or you know selling them something or <coughs> or raising some political party or some other matter the fact that you raise Jesus means that they have some kind of conscience about that and they generally respond very badly to it because you are touching that point in their conscience and so therefore it follows that people are actually more interested than we might imagine and the fact that you know Saul standing there sitting there does in fact respond ultimately to Stephen's message is a huge encouragement so then he uh, goes on and, and they eventually I think get the message and the fact they're so angry verse 54 eventually they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth that says it all he was right they did have a conscience 
I mean, why get so mad about some guy who says, yeah, there was another man who uh, was dead and is now alive and has now gone to heaven? Yeah, there's all kind of crazy people who say all sorts of crazy things. Why get so particularly mad about someone who says that about Jesus? Why gnash your teeth and get cut to the heart? Quite clearly, because they knew on some level in their conscience that this was all true, what Stephen had been saying uh, ultimately about Jesus. And yet, interestingly, this whole language of gnashing their teeth, verse, 40, uh, verse 54, this is the very language often used in the Gospels about the rejected at the Day of Judgment. Matthew 8, 12, 13, 42, and 50, 22, 13, 24, 51, 25, 30. It's as if those Jews were living out their own rejection in this life by their attitude to God's word as they encountered it in Stephen's preaching. And so in a sense, whenever we really come before God's word, and particularly before Jesus crucified, as, as we do at the breaking of bread, we in essence have our judgment. We come in essence before him there, and we live out now either our acceptance or our condemnation. So in that sense, the essence of judgment is going on right now. It's not all about something in the future. It is in essence going on right now. It's not as if God is uh, sort of looking somewhere else and the books uh, are kind of being written, but they will be opened when Jesus comes back and he'll have a, an assessment, have a good look through how we got on. The judgment in essence is going on now. And the whole idea of the future judgment, I think, is for our benefit, not so that God can gather information about us. In that sense, the language of a day of judgment is a metaphor that uh, can't be pushed too literally. So, 55, he knows he's at the end, and he looks up steadfastly into heaven, and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And I think it's... Uh, Lovely how he begins Act 7 by saying, The God of glory, verse 2, appeared unto our father Abraham. And having said that, at the end of the speech, The God of glory appears not just to Abraham, but to Stephen. God heard that man's words, and he responded appropriately. And you know, God can do that sort of thing in our lives as well. You may think that this is absolutely facile, but I think it's true but there have been times when I've been talking about uh, light and, uh, for example, light at the end of the tunnel. I remember talking to one young couple about light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, suddenly the sun came out very strongly from behind a, a cloud and shone right in our faces. Now, I, I believe that was from God. And that's happened to me several times, the sun coming out, just at a time when we've been talking about something to do with, you know, glory or the sun or, or light or, or whatever. And I, I really don't think that that's chance. And it's the same here. The God of glory appeared to Abraham, okay, and I don't suppose that uh, Stephen expected it to happen, but then the God of glory appears to him, as if to say, you, Stephen, are the seed of Abraham and I'm with you. Little things like that, that's what providence, that's what the hand of God in our lives is all about. And he says, uh, we're told that he saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God. 
I've counted up 13 times in the New Testament where the point is made that the Lord Jesus sits at the right hand of God, unlike the Mosaic priests who stood there. Hebrews 10.12 specifically makes that point. The point is that Jesus, in his mediation for Stephen, in his mediation for us, gets passionately involved to the point that he stands up and he gets involved for Stephen. Now, it could be that to deliver the verdict, they, as they did in, in the courts of those days, they stood up to give the condemnation. And yet, the Lord Jesus stood up in heaven for Stephen, as if to show Stephen that, look, all that's going on in earth, on earth for you is being played out in the court of heaven, in the heavenly throne room. Jesus had the same idea in Luke 12:8 when he said that whoever confesses him before men, he will confess him before the angels in the court of heaven. So man is not alone. What we go through in this life is in fact, is in fact reflected in heaven. That it's not that God has forgotten or is ignorant. It really is all being worked out in heaven. And then he makes these amazing words of forgiveness to them. Um, in, in verse 60, lay not this sin to their charge. And he says in 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, uh, in, the, um, in the Greek it seems to imply in, in verse 60, when he says, lay not this sin to their charge, charge them not with this sin. It's legal language. It's as if he sees in heaven, the court of heaven reflecting what's going on on earth. And he says, Lord, in your court, please don't, for my sake, charge them with this sin. He becomes the advocate for them, the counsel for the defense, for these wicked people who are trying to kill him. Why? Where does he get the motivation for that? Because he's just seen Jesus mediating for him in heaven. For him, a sinner. And so he's motivated to go and mediate for others, even those about to kill him. So that is the motivation that we have in our intercession, in our care, in our mediation for others, even those who hate us and try to kill us, because Jesus is doing that for us. And of course, when he says, receive my spirit, and when he says, you know, lay not this sin to their charge, don't charge him with this sin, I mean, he's clearly influenced by the example of Jesus on the cross, who said the same thing, Father, forgive them, uh, and who also says, yeah, into your hand are, hands I commend my spirit. The point is that for him, the Jesus who died on the cross was a living and live example for him in his time of need. And so as we take this bread and wine, we have that same message coming through to us, that he there is for me today, that he there in all his forgiveness of his enemies, his mediation for those who, uh, who were killing him, even, his giving of his spirit into God's hands, he speaks to us this day. And as we see in our mind's eye the Lord Jesus mediating for us, so we also are to mediate for others, no matter if they're our worst enemies trying to kill us. And in the end, there will be some response as there was supremely with, with Paul.